Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Oh, hi, spooky people. You just caught me in the middle of a seance. <laughs> well, since you are here, let me tell you of how I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. This episode and many others are entirely listener-supported. If you'd like to join me as an executive producer, check out the Support the Show tab at historyghostbump.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Now, back to my seance. Is there anyone here with me today? Is there anyone here with me today? What is your name? Spooky. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 191st episode of the History Goes Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we're bringing something that has been requested by a lot of people. You guys have wanted us to talk about the history of spiritualism, so we're going to get into that, because we're also going to be talking about the Eddie Brothers and their homestead with our listener, Marisa Dobrik. And you can't talk about the Eddie Brothers without talking about spiritualism. They're not very well known, but they should be, because I don't know, Denise, as we start looking at the history here and a lot of the events they seem like they might have been legit, at least partially. And I'm like you, Diane. I'm surprised they weren't more well-known than they were. Our bumper, we had another one from Angie there. Denise, what did you think of her uh, having a little seance? It, it goes perfect with what we're talking about here. I love the fact that she did a bumper tempting the spirits. I'm not so sure about, though, Miss Angie. <laughs> Angie also is the one who suggests the moment oddity that we're going to have coming up. It's going to feature something about Madame Tassad. And Denise was perusing their site on the internet, and we were horrified to find out that the Chamber of Horrors closed permanently in April of 2016, just last year. This is a tragic circumstance. I have not gotten to see that, and now I'm not going to be able to. I'm not happy. And I was going to take you there for sure, because it was very creepy when I got to go through it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and welcome into the Spooktacular crew. Allison, who spells her name A-L-L-Y-S-O-N. Hello, Allison. Antoinette. Hey, Antoinette. Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Taylor. Hey, Taylor. And Abigail, who spells her name A-B-A-G-A-E-L. And hello, Abigail. Talk about some creative parents out there. They're doing a good job with naming the kids. 
they're doing a good job naming, but they're doing a horrible job for them to be able to get little license plates for their bikes. Or a mug that has their name on it. Or a key ring. And now, this moment, Noddity. And today's moment in oddity was suggested by Angie Reynoso Akbarzad. Marie Toussaint was a wax artist who has become famous for her waxwork museums. She began her work during the late 18th century and was asked to make death masks of King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette after they were beheaded during the French Revolution. She complied to prove her loyalty to the French Revolution. The Princess de Lambaye was the superintendent of Marie Antoinette's household. Marie Tassad thought of her as a kind person, so she was upset to hear that she'd been horribly abused and murdered during the Revolution. And to her true horror, the murderers brought her severed head to Marie and forced her to make a wax cast of it. Having to hold her friend's head in her lap as she made the mold had to have been horrible. Then there was a radical journalist, Marat, who was murdered in his bathtub. The police escorted Marie to the scene of the crime, and she had to take a mold of his still warm head. Marie would visit the cemeteries where the bodies of historically significant people were starting to pile up to see if she could find more heads to mold to help make money. She expanded into making dioramas of notorious criminals and their gruesome crime scenes. Toussaint added real artifacts to her displays as well. She decided to take her creations on the road in 1802 and she traveled throughout Britain. She finally ended up at London's Baker in 1835. Her museum there was called the Chamber of Horrors. Today, there are 24 museums on four continents. Most waxworks were made from the living, but the idea that Madame Tassad's original waxworks began with using the dead and beheaded certainly is odd. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of March, on the 27th day in 1977, the worst accident in the history of civil aviation occurred as two Boeing 747 jets collided on the ground in the Canary Islands, resulting in 570 deaths. The accident happened at the Los Rodeos Airport on the island of Tenerife. One jet belonged to KLM and the other to Pan Am. Not only is the crash unique in being the worst, but one has to wonder how two jumbo jets hit each other at a small airport in such a devastating way that nearly all passengers on both jets were killed. Neither plane was supposed to be at this airport, but the airport they were destined for had suffered a terrorist bombing. Both jets waited at Los Rodeos to be cleared to land at Las Palmas. They were cleared and KLM was told to take off first. But the pilot, who was a top 747 instructor, decided to refuel first. During that time, a freak blanket of fog enveloped the airport. Planes would have to make a back taxi departure as well because of congestion at the small airport. The Pan Am pilots missed their turnoff from the runway just as the KLM was ready to taxi. KLM received route clearance, which they mistook for takeoff clearance. 
They began their taxi without permission, and the Pan Am flight and control tower both said thanks to get the KLM jet to stop, but their messages overlapped and were not heard properly. The Pan Am saw the KLM jet when it was 2,000 feet away, heading at them nose first. The pilot tried to pull the 747 off the runway, but it was too late. The KLM tried to pull up, but its undercarriage and engines sliced through the midsection of the Pan Am, and a series of explosions followed. 61 people survived, including the five people in the Pan Am cockpit. This series of blunders and miscommunication ended up killing 570 people. Psychic phenomenon and interaction with the spiritual world dates back to the beginning of humankind. Humans have used various means to facilitate this communication. During the Victorian era, the practice of spiritualism began and grew in popularity. Many people are credited with growing the beliefs and interest in the afterlife. The Fox sisters from New York are a couple of those people. The sisters would eventually claim to be frauds, but there was another pair of siblings who are much harder to discredit that were popular a couple decades after the Fox sisters. Those siblings were the Eddie brothers of Vermont. Not only were they practitioners of spiritualism, but their home was host to countless spirits and apparitions, some of whom still seem to remain today. Join us as we explore the history of spiritualism and discuss the lives of the Eddie Brothers and the hauntings at the Eddie Brother House with listener Marisa Dobrik. Now, of course, there have been volumes written about spiritualism. So with us talking about the history, obviously, we're just going to be touching the surface of this, but we're going to hit some of the key main points and some of the most popular people involved in it. The condensed version. Consulting oracles or seers or medicine men seem to be a part of all early cultures, from the Greeks to the Romans to the Druids. Ancestor worship was a key part of religious practices in ancient China, revealing that people believed that the spirits of their loved ones continued on after death. It would be in the 18th century that a scientist named Emanuel Swedenborg would begin writing about philosophy from spiritual teachers. He was considered one of the greatest European minds and many thought he had been chosen to bring enlightenment to the masses as a seer. The religion of Swedenborganism grew up around his writings and claims to be a part of the Christian church. And when I was younger, I was really interested in studying other religions, uh, particularly cult-type religions. And this is one that had kind of fallen on the side of cult But in our more modern day, they have adopted a lot of the tenets of the Christian church. And so I believe they are just considered another Christian denomination nowadays. Boy, could you imagine when people say, so what's your religion? I'm a Swedenborganism. I couldn't even say (laughs) it. So so I better just stay with plain old Christian. (laughs) I'm just a Christian. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's funny when I started reading about this as a kid, when I think of Swedenborganism, for some reason, it made me think of a smorgasbord. So a lot of eating of food. Unfortunately, that's not what it is. Unfortunately, and no offense to anybody who is part of this religion, but what it reminds me of is that chef from the Muppets. (laughs) (laughs) That one. Yep. (laughs) Again, not to be offensive. So if anybody's offended, I apologize, but I could just see him saying the word. So The practice and beliefs around modern spiritualism have their beginnings in the Victorian era in the 1840s. Andrew Jackson Davis would claim to be a clairvoyant who was in contact with the spirit of Swedenborg. 
It was in March of 1844 that Davis had a life-changing experience in his first contact with the spirit world when he entered a trance-like state while in Poughkeepsie, New York. When he pulled out of the trance the next morning, he was 40 miles from Poughkeepsie and had no idea how he got where he was. The only thing he recalled was being in contact with both Swedenborg and a Greek physician named Galen. This started him on his career of lecturing and writing about contacting the spirit world and many considered him the John the Baptist of spiritualism, and his writings became the foundation for American spiritualism. Three years after Davis had his first trance experience, the Hydesville wrappings occurred. This phenomenon is named for the city where it happened, Hydesville, New York. The Fox family had moved into a two-room cottage in the city in March of 1848. The family had two daughters, Margareta and Catherine, who were known as Maggie and Kate, and shortly after they moved into the cottage, the two girls claimed to hear knocking on the walls. The two sisters quickly figured out that a spirit was trying to communicate with them. Neighbors and other family members witnessed the rappings, both hearing and feeling them. They investigated to see if they could figure out what was causing the noise, but nothing was found. The girls decided to name the entity Mr. Splitfoot. At first, Mr. Splitfoot communicated in very simple ways, like one rap for yes, two raps for no. The Fox sisters' older brother, David, developed an alphabet to make the communication more in-depth. Makes you wonder where they got that name from. Did they see like a figure with like a cloven hoof or something? I don't know. It it does freak me out that his name was Mr. Splitfoot because that's a really weird name. The alphabet system was basically like using an audible Ouija board. David would call out the letters one at a time until a rap on the wall would signal the correct letter. Through this process, the family learned that Mr. Splitfoot was a Jewish peddler named Charles B. Rosna. He had been traveling door-to-door selling his wares when he got to this particular house. The previous owner, who was named Mr. Bell, had robbed and murdered him and then buried Rosna in the cellar. He said he was earthbound because his family, that included a wife and five children, did not know where he was or what had happened to him. Digging in the cellar revealed teeth, some bone fragments, and a tin box that Rosna had carried. That was according to a spiritualist site we found. But we also found a story that the bones were found in 1904 in a crumbling cement wall by kids playing in the Fox's old residence. So we're not sure exactly what happened there. It does seem that some bones were found. We're just not sure when or how. Much publicity surrounded this event and many people started coming to the cottage, overwhelming the family. They moved to Rochester and apparently Rosna came with them and he continued to rap on the walls and communicate with the Fox sisters. And I don't know if he brought some friends or if other spirits found out that they could talk to the girls, but they started showing up too. People from all around came to witness the communication for themselves. A public demonstration was arranged at the Corinthian Hall, the city's largest assembly. Before this was allowed to happen, a committee formed that really wanted to debunk the whole talking to a ghost thing. They insisted on investigating the sisters. They hoped to prove that they were cracking their joints somehow to imitate the knocking sounds. But those Fox sisters passed all of the tests that they put them to, and the committee announced that they were authentic, the real deal. Horace Greeley was founder and editor of the New York Tribune, but for us he is better known as the namesake for Greeley, Colorado. He was part of the growth of modern spiritualism, as not only someone who believed in mediumship, but he wrote about all of the events surrounding the Fox sisters. He sent a reporter to Rochester for the demonstration. The reporter was amazed, and this convinced Greeley to bring the Fox sisters to New York where scientists could examine them further. Greeley said of the girls, 
I am convinced that the sounds and manifestations were not produced by Mrs. Fox or her daughters, nor by any human being connected with them. He put the demonstrations of the girls on stage at a theater off Broadway. They were a sensation. This is what really got spiritualism out to the masses, and people were soon trying their hand at seances and contacting spirits. This was especially popular with the middle and upper classes. House parlors soon became the center of seances. And as a matter of fact, Horace Greeley had at least one of the Fox daughters living at his home for quite some time, so he had a chance to pick her brain and test her within his own house. It should be noted that in 1888, the girls admitted it was a hoax they perpetuated by cracking the knuckles of their toes, and that it had started as an attempt to just scare their mother that got way out of hand. So, Denise, if you can imagine, and I don't know why cracking of bones would make you think of a ghost rapping. I don't know if they'd heard a story somewhere else about this. And I don't know how cracking the knuckles of your body sounds like rapping on walls. And as we said, the family members claim to have felt the rapping. So they would put their hands on the wall and feel them. So I don't know how cracking knuckles do that. Well, and you would think when they were under such strict observation, when they were trying to prove them a hoax, that somebody would have noticed if they were like curling their toes or popping their toes somehow. And I, my feet are not real flexible, so I don't know. Maybe there are people out there that you could just crack your toes while you're sitting there not touching them. But it's still, I don't know how that can be loud enough. But apparently, I don't know if they were pressured to do this or they really were just a big hoax. And I guess what had happened is they'd called their mom in one time and said, oh, listen, there's some rapping. And they thought it was a lot of fun. And then mom tells the neighbors and all these people start coming around. And before you know it, you're caught up. It's kind of like getting caught in a lie. And you really can't tell the truth because now you're too far gone. So I don't know if that's what happened here. But then how do we explain that there was a body found on the property? If, if that body was really found as has been documented somewhere, how would they have known that? Now, as we were looking through the newspapers, we found an interesting article in the Evening Star, which was from October of 1888. And the author that wrote this article maintains that the recantation of the girls could not affect spiritualism. Because you can imagine, if these are your stars, these are the ones that you say really founded this, and then they come out and say, oh, we're a couple of liars. That's very devastating to your movement and your religious beliefs. So it's interesting how they handled this. This is our funeral, and we've gathered to give the corpse a decent burial, said Mr. George H. Brooks, sarcastically in opening the meeting of spiritualists at Grand Army Hall last night. As he said it, he glanced smilingly at the vase of flowers on the altar and tables which stood on the platform. Mr. Brooks was about to answer the recantation of the Fox Sisters, which was published in the Star a few days ago, and that was what he meant when he alluded to a funeral. There were about 150 people in the hall, mostly spiritualists, evidently. After some singing and a prayer, Mr. Brooks closed his eyes to indicate doubtless that he had passed under spiritual influence and began his answer to the Fox sisters' recantation. So he's gone into a trance. So obviously what he's going to be doing here is answering through the spirit, I guess. The world, he declared, had been prepared for the spiritual dispensation by the failure of an orthodoxy which taught the doctrine of an eternal hell and a personal devil to rescue and lift up mankind from blind materialism. John Murray came to found universalism with a heaven large enough to hold all humankind, but universalism likewise failed to stem the ever-rising tide of materialism. Then Mr. Brooks passed on to sketch the rise and development of spiritualism from the first mysterious wrappings which, 46 years ago, puzzled the family and friends of the three Fox sisters in the little town of Hyde. 
He told how the mother of the girls discovered the spiritual intelligences which caused the strange manifestations and how slowly hundreds and thousands had come to know and acknowledge the truths thus revealed. Communication having thus been opened, as it were, with the spirit world from the simple wrappings, the manifestations became more and more complex and came in a hundred ways. Mediums increased in number correspondingly, until now there was scarcely a household in the land which did not have a member of it susceptible to the influence or in which manifestations had not taken place. So this article that is saying, pretty much every house has somebody who's talking to the dead. It was the era of spirit tempting. I guess that's how popular it was. And in the face of all this, Mr. Brooks exclaimed, spiritualists were told that the so-called recantation of the Fox sisters in New York the other night had killed spiritualism. If all the mediums in the world recanted, it would not kill spiritualism. Indeed, for years, spiritualists knew that two of the Fox sisters, through luxury and failing to live up to their higher selves, had become dissolute women. So now we're going to start attacking <laughs> the messengers, Denise. But of course. The third, Mrs. Fox Underhill, was still as steadfast in the faith as a rock. She had striven again and again to rescue her two sisters, Kate and Maggie, who had fallen by the way. She had endeavored to surround them with all good influences, but her efforts were in vain. The girls went back to their old habits, he said, and less than a year ago, one of them, Mrs. Jenkins, had been arrested as a drunkard and her two children were taken from her. So now one of the sisters who started this whole thing, oh, she's just a drunkard and she lost her kids. And then, according to the person who wrote this article, Mr. Brooks gets really excited. For years, spiritualists had not regarded these two sisters as of them, knowing that they had entered, dun, 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 the Catholic Church. And it was under Catholic influence that they had made their recantation. Of all the religions of the world, the Catholic Church, the speaker said, most feared spiritualism. It had used these Fox sisters in the hope of destroying spiritualism. At this point, the speaker became quite impassioned and warned his hearers to beware of the Catholics who were seeking to overthrow our schools and our government as well as spiritualism. In his excitement, he struck a vase of flowers on the table beside him and knocked it over, the water running to the floor in quite a stream. Continuing, the speaker took occasion to warn mediums against exhausting their powers as the Fox sisters had done. So they just ran out of power, I guess, Denise. Kind of like batteries leaving themselves in a weak condition physically and mentally and unfit to combat temptation. So I guess joining the Catholic Church was a temptation. He urged spiritualists to surround mediums with all good influences. The day had gone by when mediums could live bad lives and retain their standing. You know, the Catholic Church is extremely powerful. Cause, so I could see even if it wasn't a hoax, since nobody could kind of figure that out, that they would have been able to pressure them into recanting that too. So I can see some truth in that. So then Mr. Brooks goes on to warn everybody to, you know, protect yourselves and all that good stuff. And the article ends with how he ends this session. Then he gave a test of mediumship by touching the left hands of persons in the audience and attempting to tell them something of their lives and character. These tests were not very successful. <laughs> Well, and then there's that. <laughs> so we're not sure that Mr. Brooks actually was legit himself. So maybe that's why thou doth protesteth too much. Yes. The main thing that I wanted to share there, though, was how the papers were writing about it back in that time. 
Exactly. Like it was just something that would be commonly in the news or discussed or talked about. Exactly. It's like talking about a political thing or what have you. Oh, well, we had this little event down the street. I mean, this was big news at that time. Can you imagine in 2017 talking about spiritualism in such an open way and that there's this guy that's saying, ah, darn Catholic Church is ruining it for us. In another article from 1890 in the Salt Lake Herald, we found the history of the house that seemed to have a haunting. There was someone who lived in the house before the Foxes, but after Mr. Bell. Mike Weekman, des- Mike Weekman, described as a poor, ignorant laborer, had trouble with mysterious wrappings on the walls of the house. It got to the point where the family could not go to sleep at night, and they soon abandoned the house. And even a more interesting point that we found in this article was a part about spiritualism starting long before the girls with trance-channeling happenings in the Shaker Church in 1843 in New York at New Lebanon. The members struck with these trances delivered long discourses from eminent men of bygone ages. So this just goes to show that the practices of spiritualism obviously did not start with the Fox sisters. And I thought it was interesting that here you have a Shaker church and they're having these trances and going on and on with this long discourses. So before spiritualism got popular, this was occurring. Was it legit? I don't know, but it makes it a little bit more legit that it wasn't a craze that was sweeping the nation. And you have a man who lived in the house before the foxes that had such haunting occurrences that he ran from the home. And he's As the paper described him, that wasn't us describing him. The paper described him as a poor, ignorant laborer. So it doesn't seem like something that he would have just made up. And if he's poor, he's probably not just going to run from a home. Exactly. And it was the same thing that the Fox sisters were doing. So then it kind of, you're like, huh, were they pressured to say that none of it was true? Yeah, so I just thought it was interesting because I was looking for anything about the Fox sisters and this article popped up and I started reading it and I went, wait a minute, somebody else experienced wrappings in that house long before them. Another key figure in the movement was Emma Hardinge Britton. She was born in London in 1823. She got involved in the theater and traveled with a company to New York in 1856. When there, she met a medium named Ada Hoyt who converted her to spiritualism. Britain mastered automatic writing, psychometry, which is reading objects by feeling them for people who don't know that, prophecy, and healing. Robert Dale Owen was an American statesman who communicated with Britain after he died, and he gave her the first four of the seven original principles of spiritualism. So basically, through automatic writing, she was putting down on paper a lot of the principles that they still hold to. British spiritualists still adhere to these principles. The American Association has drafted some of their own. Britain was one of the most zealous spiritualists in history, and she took her message all around the world. I think she went to every continent except for Antarctica. Another adherent and pioneer to spiritualism in America was a very unlikely person, a chief justice of the New York State Supreme Court. Judge John W. Edmonds wrote the book Spiritualism in 1853, detailing his investigations of mediums. He had witnessed hundreds of manifestations. His book outraged the churches and politicians, and they, along with the press, forced the judge to resign the bench and return to private practice. Despite the negative response of much of the public, many high-profile people were embracing this new spiritual science. The Lincolns used mediums and participated in seances. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a true believer, as were Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Thomas Carlyle, Emily Dickinson, 
Sir William Crooks, Edgar Allan Poe, Alfred Russell Wallace, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Queen Victoria, Mark Twain, and William Cullen Bryant. Harry Houdini had been traveling the country and actively proving psychics and mediums to be frauds. He would show how many mediums pulled off their demonstrations with his expertise in illusion. He became friends with Conan Doyle, and on a trip to America, Doyle offered Houdini a reading from his wife in regards to Houdini's dead mother. Mrs. Doyle presented the result in a letter which read, Oh, my darling, thank God, thank God, at last I'm through. I've tried oh so often. Now I'm happy. Why, of course I want to talk to my boy, my own beloved boy. Friends, thank you, thank you with all my heart for this. You've answered the cry of my heart and of his. God bless him a thousandfold for all his life for me. Never had a mother such a son. Tell him not to grieve. Soon he will get all the evidence he is anxious for. I want him to know that I have bridged the gulf, which is what I wanted. Oh, so much. Now I can be in peace. A little bit general. Uh, yeah, very general. Houdini would believe none of it. The letter was in English, and Houdini's mother did not know the language. Mrs. Doyle drew a cross at the top of the page, but the Houdini family was Jewish. The experience happened on Houdini's mother's birthday, but she made no mention of the special date. The friendship with Doyle ended. While spiritualism was popular through the Victorian era, the 1920s would see a movement against mediums. There was even an anti-fortune-telling bill introduced into Congress in 1926. It was meant to outlaw any kind of psychic activity for money. Houdini testified before a congressional subcommittee in favor of the bill. The bill failed because of the constitutional guarantee of freedom of religion. The main reason why Houdini went out after these mediums is because the Doyles, he felt, played this trick on him. And so he made it his mission. At first, he was going to a bunch of mediums to see if he could get any of them to communicate with his mother. And then I think through all of that, he realized, oh, they're frauds. They're playing some tricks and I can imitate what they're doing. And so that's what got him started. Well, and I don't think I would have gone with what the Doyles said. It was very, very generic. I mean, any mother could say that they love their son, their dear, dear son. And then just those other things and didn't mention the birthday. It's like, okay, not specific. Doyle became friends with another American named Arthur Augustus Ford. This man was from Georgia, and he was able to channel spirits while in a trance. He traveled to Great Britain in 1927 to meet with Doyle, who said of Ford, One of the most amazing things I've ever seen in 41 years of psychic experience was the demonstration by Arthur Ford. Ford claimed that he could channel Houdini, who had died in 1926 with a blow to the stomach. And for those of you who don't know, Houdini used to let people punch him in the stomach as hard as they could to show how manly he was. And unfortunately, he was not prepared for this blow that came at him and it caused him severe internal bleeding. And he just slowly basically bled to death, a very horrible way to die. Houdini's wife, Beatrice, was notified and she agreed to meet with Ford. What Ford didn't know was that she and Houdini had arranged a secret or what we would call a code word. He told Beatrice, if there's any afterlife and there's any way that I can come through, I will come through with this code word and that's how you'll know it's me. So she says, okay, this guy says that he's speaking for my husband. Somehow he's communicating with him. I'll meet with him and see if he's got the code word. Ford and Beatrice had 10 sessions together. Apparently the code word was given during these sessions. Beatrice said, regardless of any statement made to the contrary, I wish to declare that the message in its entirety and in the agreed upon sequence given to me by Arthur Ford is the correct code prearranged between Mr. Houdini and myself. 
The press reported that the code was not given correctly. So which are we to believe, the press or Mrs. Houdini? It's hard to know the truth, but Beatrice did hold seances for 10 years on the anniversary of his death, which basically she said, I'm going to give it 10 years. So I'll give him 10 chances on Halloween night to come through and tell me that he is out there and he never came through on any of those seances. So I don't understand how she would have gotten a message from Arthur Ford and then decided to do these seances. If you've already had him communicate with you, what's the point of doing these other seances and then to say that he never came through after that? So it seems to me that Houdini never did come through. Practitioners of spiritualism have consistently declined through the years. Great Britain has remained the hub of spiritualism. The first spiritualist church was established in the British Isles in 1853 by David Richmond at Kiley in Yorkshire. In 1855, the first spiritualist newspaper in Britain, the Yorkshire Spiritual Telegraph, was published. Spiritualist societies and churches popped up throughout the country throughout the 1870s. Today, there are more spiritualist churches, publications, mediums, and colleges in Britain than anywhere in the world combined. It showplaces the Arthur Finley College at Stansted Hall in Essex, which is run by the largest spiritualist association, the Spiritualist National Union. So that's basically a brief overview, the nuts and bolts of spiritualism's beginnings, which on the surface doesn't seem all that creepy or spooky. But there were a lot of things that happened during the seances that would be kind of creepy or spooky if they were real. But some of the things that occurred, a lot of you have probably seen the spirit photography during the Victorian era. I know you've seen those pictures, right, Denise? Yes. And if they were real, oh my gosh, that's enough to make you pee your pants. And then there was the expulsion of this substance called ectoplasm from the mouths of mediums. You've probably seen those pictures too, right, Denise? Yes, I have. Kind of looks like they're foaming at the mouth and it's just coming out. Well, a lot of this was proven to be false. Those spirit photographs were double exposures. And then most ectoplasm was either cheesecloth or some other kind of gauze that a medium would stuff into the back of their throats. And other places. And yes, other places they would have it coming out of. That one book, was it Spook? That yes. we read by Mary Roach? Yeah. Uh, just think of a female medium and different orifices and yeah. yeah. Uh, we found an article from 1883 detailing a man in California who was suing a medium after he seized upon the material that was this ectoplasm and found it to be gauze. And then when he discovered that this had happened, the medium had these henchmen standing around and they beat the crap out of the guy. <laughs> so he proved the, the medium was a fraud. And he got beat up for it. So he was suing. Table tipping, in which a table floats beneath the tips of the fingers of the participants, were found to be rigged. And knocking sounds were caused by devices that were hidden in clothing. But can we say without a doubt that all of these seances were just elaborate displays of trickery? We can't imagine that people would continually host parlor tricks in their homes. You'd all get together and, and have games. It's almost like playing a game and then nobody gets to win. You would think somewhere along the lines there's got to be some reality going on here. And despite being skeptical, we do believe in an afterlife, right? So, yes. And we believe that there's probably an ability to communicate over the veil or past the veil or behind the veil. As we wonder with the use of the Ouija board, who were these people talking to and what was being channeled? That's what becomes worrisome for me, is if this is legit, then we have to start looking at what is it? Was it all a fraud? The story of the Eddie brothers in Vermont seems to have some legitimacy to the claims of spiritualism. 
And we are joined by our listener, Reese Dobrik, to talk about the Eddie family and the home that they had lived in, the Eddie Brothers' house. But why don't I first have you share with everybody, I know that you are a historian, basically, so why don't you share with everybody a little bit about yourself? I'm an archivist, and I'm a what self-prescribed history geek. I basically have loved history since I was little. My parents took me to reenactment site, and I'm from the Midwest originally, and I live in Vermont now. It's kind of cold here right now, so I have a lot of time to read lots of fun history. Uh, I keep digging in, so hard to make me stop. The town of Chittenden, where all of this is going to take place, is the largest in the state by size, but not by population. And it's named for Thomas Chittenden, who was one of the Green Mountain Boys. And this was a militia that resisted New York's attempts to control the territory and was headed by Ethan Allen in the late 1700s. Well, what's really cool is we have not done a location in Vermont. So when you were like, you guys need to do somewhere here, and you <laughs> threw out some locations, I was like, huh, this Eddie Brothers, this sounds intriguing. And I put it in and I went, oh my gosh, what an incredible site. Because not only are we going to be talking about a haunted location, but these guys are pretty much famous when it comes to spiritualism and mediumship. And from tempting back- the spirit. And, and from the Victorian <laughs> era. I mean, it's like hitting on all gears here. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing that I found interesting the first time I heard someone speak about them is they don't just call it the spirit capital of the world. They call it the spirit capital of the universe. Wow, that's a pretty big mark there. (laughs) That's what I thought. Well, I can honestly say we've never had something where we can say this is the most haunted place in the universe. It's always either in that town or in the United States or the most haunted hotel. So now we're going universal. Pretty cool. They call Vermont the brave little state, and it likes to one-up everything sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys are little, so, you know, it's kind of like the little dog thing. You've got to do something. Do you know who originally was in that area to begin with? The Abenaki were the first Native peoples who lived in Vermont, and they largely went underground because of the eugenics movements in the 1920s and 30s. So a lot of them were targeted, along with French Canadians, because of the intermarriage. But the, the Wabanaki, they are state recognized, but it's, they're, they're not a federally recognized tribe. So this town of Chittenden, is it the whole town that they are saying is the spiritual hub of the universe? Or is it just specifically where their farm was located? It sounds like the homestead was sort of the center of all this, but the town proudly called itself the spirit capital of the universe. As far as I can tell, because a lot of this is folklore, too, is mm-hmm. that there's a lot of area things in the area because of the mountains that is somewhat remote. And so there's a lot of supposed hauntings in the area, too. Okay, this makes me think of Santa Cruz, same kind of thing, where it's the whole area has a whole lot of supernatural stuff tied into it. That makes sense. I mean, I've heard that there's even the Yeti in other parts of the state, too. So you never know. Do they actually call it the Yeti there? I've heard different things. I think it's Wild Man. But we also have Lake Champlain has a akin to the Loch Ness Monster. It has Champ, the lake monster, too. That's right. I've heard about him. Yep. So have you been to Chittenden? I haven't. Um, I've been down to that area in Rutland, but not to Chittenden. We were going to try But there was nothing really that justified the chaos to go right now. The current lodge where this happened is not open to the public, and there's basically nothing else open. So we're going to go when the weather's nicer, and we'll make sure we report back. My husband's sort of the photographer of the family. so. Well, very cool. 
let's talk about the Eddie brothers. We've got William and Horatio. What do you know about their past? So they were very poorly treated by their father. Zephaniah Eddie built the home and he married a woman named Julia McComb. She was supposed to have been descended from one of the Salem witch trial witches who escaped named Mary Bradbury. So as far as I can tell, there were 11 children total that the two of them had together, but several of them, as usually happens in the Victorian, died young. They had this homestead that they moved into when the children were younger. As far as I can tell, they were just a very weird family. The stories and everything I've read about them says that they got treated very poorly by their father. They were basically abused by Zephaniah. So, sorry, that's R.D. I scared the pants out of myself reading some of it because these children would, the two of them especially, so they were about 10 years apart, but they would see all sorts of uh, spirits. Others, they'd, they'd be playing with other children. Their father would come to tell them to do their work and he'd find that the children were gone. They would just go into these trances and nobody could bring them out of it. And he, he abused them terribly. It wasn't just beating them. It was also like burning them wow. to try to get them out of it. And eventually he sold the two of them to a traveling salesman, basically a traveling show. And they traveled across the world going into these trances. And so I think the town considered them odd. And I think just about they were sort of scarred by their life by the time they'd grown up. Wow. It makes you almost wonder if this is one of those chicken and the egg things where did they start reacting this way because of the abuse that was happening to them? So it was a psychological protection or did the abuse increase because he was like so frustrated and didn't know what to do when they're in these trance states? That makes sense. I mean, it sounds like at least some of the stories say that they'd actually disappear from their cribs and be found elsewhere, like even outside. Some of those stories just sort of struck me as tragic, too. Wow, that is really bizarre. Because what's interesting is this starts off, as you hear with a lot of children who have some kind of medium skills, and they have that invisible friend that nobody else can see. So it's almost like that's what they're doing. But you usually don't hear entering some kind of a trance that is hard for you to pull them out of. And that's the the key thing I think these two boys had when they traveled and when they were living at home is they would go into this trance and nobody could pull them out of it. And they would talk about their friends who didn't exist. I mean, they were par- they weren't very well educated, as far as I can tell, just because it was a small area anyways. They mostly just worked a small farm homestead. So they didn't really have a, a background to make it up either at that age. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, where would have they learned something like this? It obviously wasn't taught to them. They didn't see it somewhere else. So this is something that just seemed to happen to them, which makes it a little bit more believable that something was going on here, whether we know exactly what that was. Yeah, and the two young, these two boys were the best known. A lot of the surviving children who stayed home also apparently had some gift, but they didn't, I guess, use it to such an extent or... Did I read somewhere, did their mother also have the gift, uh, some sort of psychic gift, but she would hide it because of the abusiveness of their father? Yeah, so Julia Eddy was also, at least all the stories say that she was of Scottish descent, the Salem, her side of the family. So the Eddy, Zephaniah, didn't have the gift. It was Julia and her family that did. And she was supposed to be able to just see things, parsing, guessing knowing, but she tried to hide it. And so their first son, and I forget his name, was born very much a normal sort of angry person in the vein of Zephaniah. And the other, the rest of them, it just 
they came out more like Julia, sensitive and just having these gifts, especially the trances. I mean, one of the best stories I heard, though, was that Zephaniah was finally to the breaking point and the spirits chased him out of his own house for beating those boys, which is why he ended up selling them. Interesting. Do you know at what age that was when he sold them off? So they were sold about 1840s. So they must have been like, oh, no, I couldn't really tell their exact age, but I think they were about 10. And wow. the other one was a little older. So they must have been like 5 and 15 thereabouts. They were pretty young. Wow, that's pretty sad. So it wasn't like they were really in a place where they could be off on their own and taking care of themselves. Well, in my, I mean, again, I couldn't find the exact dates. It, it seemed like they were about 10 years apart in age. These two were the most gifted. Back then, Parents could bind their minor children over up till the age of 21. And I've seen that before. They could just bind someone off into service as indenturehood. And there was no real protection for that. And that's what I imagine occurred in this. And that's my best guess. The thing that just blows my mind with just what little reading I've done is that the dad, when he was trying to get these boys out of the trench, you know, they might have had the trickery, but he would do things that would cause it would be almost impossible to hide or to mask it if you were faking anything like with hot coals and hot boiling water, things that you would flinch no matter what. and They wouldn't even have any reaction. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's exactly true. And apparently one of the, the things that when they took the show on the road, they the audience would pay to do those kinds of things to them, too. Some of them had scars all over. I think they even shot and they wouldn't move from that trance even if they were shot. Oh, geez. A lot of this is filling in folklore and not mm -hmm. the full. I can't find the whole story. A lot of it is sort of fanciful, too. So. And I mean, the historic books I was able to mine seem to indicate that they were charlatans, that they were making it up. My feeling that the more I've read about them is that there was probably something and that they eventually learned to kind of gain from it by making tricks, you know, making it a good show. Sure, because one of the things that I've always found interesting is when you go to a haunted location, nine times out of 10, nothing's going to happen because you can't make something happen there. So I kind of feel that same way when it's with mediums, too. Is it? Can you always call it out and always have everything? Just if it, if something happens perfectly all the time, it makes me doubt it a little bit more. And maybe that's why they were like, well, we've got to have something happen here. Well, and they really made a lot happen. I mean, by the time Zephaniah died, they came back to Chittenden. They were about 20 and 30. They'd been on the road like about 14 years each. And they started holding seances with their sister at their home, which was this homestead. They, I think they call it the Green Tavern or Green Inn at the time. There's a lot of green things here because of the green mountains. But they could supposedly levitate, move objects with their mind in addition to the trances. And they had like up to 400 different spirits that they'd manifest in these seances. Henry Still Alcott was a successful attorney when he read about the exploits of the Eddy brothers in a copy of the spiritualist newspaper, The Banner of Light. Before becoming a lawyer, Olcott had studied agricultural science, founded a school for agricultural students, been the farm editor for Horace Greeley's newspaper, The New York Tribune, and had been a special investigator for the Union Army during the Civil War. He was one of the investigators on a three-person panel looking into Lincoln's assassination. Olcott studied law and became a wealthy lawyer after the war. He decided he wanted to check out what these Eddie brothers were up to and his main goal was to prove them frauds. He thought they were frauds. 
but he actually observed them for 10 weeks, just like everybody else. He thought they were really weird and didn't like them. But afterwards, he believed it was true. He wrote a book called People from Other Worlds about his experiences. But he, he cataloged like 400 different spirits, a spinning woman, a Native American from the area, probably Abenaki women. And then he actually viewed them. He saw some of them. Mary, the sister and other friends may have had some smoke and mirrors involved in that. But these are the things that are are said to kind of haunt it now. An outdoor seance was held on Alcott's first day at the Eddie Brothers' house. A group of 10 people gathered in a ravine at night in front of a cave. The location was known to locals as Honto's Cave because a Native American spirit was known to appear there. Horatio was the medium and he sat on a stool under the cave's arch. He was covered over with tree branches so nobody could see him. A large Native American man emerged from the cave as Horatio rested beneath the branches. Horatio began to speak with the spirit when suddenly another large Native American appeared on top of the cave. The participants cried out as more spirits appeared. There was a female on a ledge and William White, the late editor of a spiritualist newspaper. Ten spirits in all appeared before they vanished altogether. Alcott investigated the cave with the man he had brought with him. They found no footprints and could not see a way that anyone could slip in and out of the cave without being seen. And I think, Diane, I'd read somewhere that the other thing that was kind of weird about this one is there was nobody in their group that was tall enough to even kind of fake out that they were one of the spirits because they were they were smaller in stature people. Exactly. Both of the Native Americans were apparently very tall And again, if you have 10 spirits all appearing at the same time, you could say, okay, the female on the ledge, maybe it was their sister because their sister lived with them. And maybe one of the Native Americans was the other brother. And maybe somehow Horatio's not beneath the branches. Maybe they couldn't see him. So here you've got three of them. But how do you come up with 10? Exactly. Well, Alcott was not easily fooled and he wanted to attend a seance in the house where he felt he could control the environment a little more easily. A large circle room was used for the seances, and he examined everything. He was taking measurements, looking out for secret doors or false panels, and found nothing. He brought in engineers and carpenters to look over everything and see if they could find anything strange, maybe something that he had missed, but the experts found nothing out of the ordinary either. Alcott was convinced after this that the walls and floors were solid. He stayed on for many weeks participating in seances. People would sit on benches and watch as spirit after spirit would appear from the seance cabinet. Some nights there could be as many as 20 or 30 apparitions. Some would be solid, others transparent. Some were very tall and others quite small. And all races and forms of clothing would make appearances. So this is Alcott who's come to prove these guys to be frauds and now he's befuddled. He doesn't know what is going on here. He's examined everything thoroughly And this seance cabinet that they used was only big enough for one person to be inside of it. So it's not like they could hide these people in there and have them just come out, especially in large numbers. To have even more than one come out would be very unique. So I could see if we just have one brother going into the cabinet and then the spirit comes out of it wearing these different clothes. Okay, it was a quick change and, you know, he's just imitating somebody else. But to have multiple ones... That's a little bit harder, especially, and I don't know if the 20 or 30 are all standing about the room together, or if it's just 20 one at a time. I'm not exactly sure how that all came about. But it was convincing enough for somebody like Alcott, 
who not only was skeptical, but he wanted to prove these guys to be frauds for him to be like, hmm. So Alcott spent several weeks there. He was there for about two months and he surmised that he probably witnessed about 400 spirits in that time. And he just continued to investigate. And in the end, he said that he felt that the brothers were incapable, both physically and financially, of pulling off an elaborate fraud this way. Because keep in mind, if we're talking about a lot of different clothing here, they would have had to have bought all of that clothing. And they just didn't have the finances. Maybe they hired a bunch of people to come in and help them out. But again, that's expensive. And the other thing, as you were listening to uh, Reese describe the brothers in their youth, basically being sold off to the circus, they weren't going to school. So the brothers were practically illiterate. They didn't have a lot of formal schooling. And another interesting thing about Alcott is he didn't like the brothers. He didn't like his stay there. He didn't care for the food. He didn't like the brothers. So you got to wonder, if, if you don't like somebody, you're probably not going to lie on their behalf, let's say. So it lends a little bit more credence to the belief that maybe they were legit. And as Reese said, he wrote this book, People from Other Worlds, and I found some excerpts from it, and I just wanted to share these with you guys. This is what Alcott wrote. These instructions being obeyed, spirit faces soon began to appear, and finally Santum, the giant Winnebago chief, whom my readers will re- recollect my mentioning a connection with the seance at Honto's cave, stalked out in full form. For a long while, no other spirit came, but finally they made their appearance. Electa, a light-complexioned, and let me just say, this is his writing, so I don't want to get emails about our politically incorrect speech. I'm reading what he wrote. A light-complexioned squaw, about 17 years of age, who always brings her pet Robin with her, and who forms one of the spirit band who perform instrumental music at the dark circles, many of which I've attended and which will be described in due time, was among the earliest visitors. Then the deceased members of their own family appeared, among them Miranda, who came hand in hand with a young man named Griffin Grinnell, to whom she had been betrothed. The lovers parted for a while by death were reunited beyond the grave. Francis and James, their deceased brothers, came too. Then as people began to flock to the old farmhouse, their personal friends manifested their presence, the first or nearly the first, for the family could not definitely decide the point, being a Mrs. Annie Barker, wife of G. Barker of Hubbleton, Vermont. One evening, a young lady visitor saw the shade of her father, the late Captain Johnson, United States Navy, who came in citizen's clothes. The daughter mentally requested him to appear to her in his uniform, whereupon he retired for a moment, and then he returned in full naval dress with sword and epaulets. So he comes in regular clothes. She says, Dad, I want to see you in your uniform he goes away and comes back in a uniform. This is one instance among many of the doing of something by the apparitions in response to mental requests made by spectators. So it's not like the brothers could prepare for what was going to be requested either. Yeah, because they didn't know what the spectators were going to ask. Now, unless you went on this elaborate hoax and then they had to plant all the spectators, get all the people appearing from a closet they couldn't appear. So this is starting to seem a little bit legit in a lot of ways. The thing has occurred to me several times, as will be seen further on. It should also be noted that this supposed spirit reappeared in the uniform of his rank and it is hardly credible that William Eddy, in addition to all the other costumes, uniformed, uninformed skeptics imagine his wardrobe to contain, should have a full assortment of Army and Navy uniforms for officers and privates. So it's not even that he just showed up in a uniform. It was at his rank. 
Again, we're talking about they couldn't afford the expense. Imagine having all those different uniforms and you'd have to know what rank the father was. So if we believe Alcott, these guys seem legit. Now, as I say all the time, I'm an open-minded skeptic, so I lean to skepticism first, and I don't necessarily believe things offhand. We weren't there. We're going on secondhand information here. I have to believe that all of these things happened exactly as they were and that this Alcott is an honest guy, but wow. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't some tricks involved here. Exactly, because what is interesting is that a magician named Chungling Su exposed one of the Eddie's brothers' tricks as a fraud, and psychical researcher Herward Carrington claimed the brothers were using sleight of hand that was so simple that it was farcical. The trick involved Horatio and two members from the audience. All three would get behind a curtain. Horatio would then have one person grab his arm, and he would grab the arm of the other participant. Horatio was in the middle. After this, a musical instrument would dance above their heads and tap the three on the head. Then a hand would come through the curtain and write a message. The idea was to convince people that a spirit was moving the instrument and writing since Horatio had one arm being held and was holding someone with the other hand. But apparently, the magician claimed that a fake hand was being used and that it was made from a piece of heavy sheet lead to hold onto the participant. It was heavy enough to convince the person that they were being held. Horatio would then have a hand free to perpetuate the trick. I think like once spiritualism faded from memory, they sort of faded. And there's a lot of Eddie descendants from their siblings in the area still. When they opened this up as a green tavern, this was actually an inn where people could come stay, right? Right. And I think seances were one of the main parts of Draws to Come. You know, the Eddie brothers had been pretty famous. I mean, they've been on the road 14 years. People saw them all over. Again, it was somewhat remote, but there was more kind of come see the scenery starting by the 1870s, of course. They call it, I mean, it's a gorgeous part of the state. I mean, almost every place in Vermont is sort of like a picture postcard. And before the roads and the highways, I imagine it was even more remote and kind of romantic because it's just surrounded by forests and mountains. One of the key things that we find in a lot of these Victorian seances is the production of ectoplasm? Is this something they did too? Yes. Yeah, so when they would do these seances, were they telling people that they were communicating with their family members? Were they saying they were channeling spirits both? I think more than anything, they were channeling spirits. Part of the maybe trickery part was they'd actually have be touched by the spirit. It wasn't just like the holding hand thing. It was like one of them would actually get tapped on the shoulder. When I heard that, that was the kind of thing that I would just run away from. But Yeah, I would be the same way. Of course, the whole the whole process of channeling has always been kind of scary to me because I don't think I'd want anybody else in my body. Thank you very much. Exactly. <laughs> And then they also, though, would have these manifestations, but usually it was just one brother in the room when that happened. But if there were both of them, the sister wouldn't be in the room, Mary. So at least some of this probably was trickery. Eventually, the brothers moved away from each other. Apparently, they did not get along with each other. They fought a lot and there was some fighting with their sister, too. So one of them left the house and the sister left the house William, I believe, stayed in the house, and he died there as a recluse in 1932. Horatio died before him in 1922. And Horatio would still do a little bit of mind reading and playing tricks or that kind of thing. But William wanted nothing to do with spiritualism after that time. 
and they took whatever secrets they had to their graves. So we'll never know for sure. There are reports of hauntings at the house, but no one is able to investigate the private property. Just based off of other stories, I think that there's definitely a, a certain level of still some residual. They don't talk about it. The It's a privately owned home now, the, the ski club, and they don't really like to, to mention it, but several of the people reported seeing the brothers, seeing some of the most famous of their hauntings, too. How fascinating to think that maybe they made up some of this spirit showing up, and yet they're at the house as spirits now. That's what I thought. I mean, I figured, like, it, in some ways it was so tragic. I mean, these young people were so poorly treated at the time. They kind of grew up odd, close to their family, but really no one else. And I mean, I think perhaps the home was kind of a place where they felt uh, safe. They just seemed like the kind of people that I felt bad for because they'd been so poorly treated and were not liked by anybody for being somewhat odd anyway. Yeah, what's interesting is you mentioned the Fox sisters and everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, heard all about it. Eddie Brothers, I was unfamiliar with them. Yeah, and I think that Vermont is a little proud now, some of its stories. And I think the Eddie Brothers is starting to come out more. We did this event and get a listen to more of the spiritual side of Vermont history. There's another book that I think is in the works on them, sort of the updated version. Because they they have like debunked some of the trickery they use, but there's all sorts of sort of interesting happenings that because Vermont was sort of remote, I think didn't necessarily get remembered. They're being rediscovered. There was a woman that was at one of these seances who was Russian. She visited a lot. I forget how to pronounce her name, but yes, I, I know that she visited around the same time as Alcott did. And she would be speaking to her husband in Russian, right? Right. I mean, and it's like, how would they know that? <laughs> they barely can do the English language. And I think that's really one of the things that made it for Alcott, that there was some truth to all this. Is I mean, because I think there were other languages spoken, too. I don't recall all of the haunts and all the stories, but I think they, they had several. I think one of them was French-Canadian as well. Interesting. I know whenever I hear people talk about EVPs that they've caught and they catch them in different languages and they have to take it to somebody for those people to translate. That also, to me, gives it legitimacy. The different manifestations were one thing, but what what got me was just the children. The, the fact that they were supposed to have seen these spirit children as children that disappeared when Zephaniah came by. And then when Zephaniah finally abused them to the breaking point, they chased him, the spirits chased him away right out of his own house. That was just sort of pretty riveting. It's like, it's sort of like they'd said enough is enough. And that reminds me of all the other like get out kinds of manifestations you hear about. Those stories were the ones that kind of riveted me. I mean, there were, I couldn't keep all of the names of the hundreds mm -hmm. of other spirits that they saw as adults. But just some of the stories of the area, too, just sort of creep me out. I mean, there's a police academy down near Pittsburgh, and that's supposed to be haunted as well. It used to be a sanitarium. And so it's not that far. And I think that's where some of this whole spirit, you know, capital of the universe comes from, is there's still other hauntings in the vicinity, too. So it's not just the Eddie Homestead. So you've got this police academy. Where else? Well, the big one in Vermont, which is farther north. My, my Vermont geography is poor at the moment, but there's Glastonbury Mountain, 
um, when the settlers showed up, they created and divvied up the land for themselves, but didn't realize that it was pretty much all mountain. And the at least legend in the area says that Glastonbury Mountain native people said that it's where the four winds met and that nobody should be live there. It was just for burial. There are four known disappearances there in what they call sort of the Bennington Triangle up north in that area. There are just people in the 40s through 50s who just fell off the face of the, the map. They just disappeared. And they were all sorts of different kinds of people, children, a young woman, all sorts of people. And it's those stories from the rest of the state. I mean, it's not a big state that I think they, they kind of blend into each other. There's a lot of haunted inns. I don't think I can stay at a single inn in most of the area without my imagination going wild. <laughs> so these people that would go missing, were they going hiking and they just didn't come back from their hikes? Yeah, I mean, they went hiking and um, one of them was a guild mountain person. I mean, somebody who, who knew it all. And they'd gone back, um, they'd fell in a river, had gone back to um, dry off and never came back. That's weird. But one of them supposedly disappeared from a bus. Like he got on the bus going home and never got, nobody ever saw him got off. There was no stop. But when they got to the next stop, he was gone. Oh, wow. Where did he go? <laughs> you can't just get off the bus while it's driving. <laughs> so, right. So some of the, I guess, guesses about the area is that that's where the there was maybe a serial killer up there. There's some other theories that it's just, it's mountain. The trails are poor. Somebody may have disappeared. The disappearances stopped in the 50s. But one of them, they, they only found like one body and they had a massive hunt for, for the body and or her and they couldn't find her. They came back months later and in a well-trodden area that they all knew about, that's where they found the body. So all of the disappearances, there haven't been any more since the 50s? Right. I think that was the last one. There's about eight that were possibly at Glastonbury Mountain, but I guess there haven't been any. I mean, there's still disappearances at times just because it's a mountain. There's mountains everywhere. Right. So we have people who disappear, but those unsolved ones, I think, stopped in the 60s. Which almost makes you wonder if it isn't some kind of man caused something. Yeah, and I think that's probably it, but it makes a good story, especially because everybody says it feels very creepy in that area. It just has that kind of heavy feeling of fear and just what? scary. To me, I say a lot of the time, humans scare me more than ghosts. So if it was a human that was doing something up there, that to me would be just as scary as if they were just walking into a vortex and disappearing or something. True enough. Well, Reese, thank you so much for joining us and for saying, hey, oh, it's over here in Vermont. We need some attention. <laughs> Get away from California for a change. Yeah. Well, happy to. I, the California stories are great, though, too. So I just wanted to make sure that some parts of New England were visited. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. During the rise of spiritualism and seances, were their spirits being contacted? Was it all a fraud? Did the Eddie Brothers have psychic powers? Were spirits manifested at the Eddie Brothers' home? That is for you to decide. We're going to have to get ourselves to Vermont one day. It sounds like a great state. Yes, it does, and I would love to go up there. Our next episode, we're going to be checking out another university, Penn State University, 
and we'll be joined by Matt Swain again to tell us about the hauntings of this university where he works. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. After we're done with our show, any of the young people who listen are never going to want to go to university after they graduate. Oh, and we just have more on the calendar too, Denise. I, I don't think there's a university out there that doesn't have a coast. That sounds pretty accurate. I want you to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get an email from Deborah. She says, hey, Diane, and especially Denise. I was listening to a podcast where people are interviewed about their paranormal experiences. A woman described seeing two male ghosts and they were wearing bell bottoms and fringed vests. That's even actually cooler than, than um, parachute pants, I think. Hey, we, we've got at least, we're getting closer to the parachute pants. I like the bell bottoms and fringe vests, so that's awesome. Uh-huh. Your hippie ghosts. Oh, and that's what she says. Yes, there are hippie ghosts, Denise. If you would like to hear for yourself, the podcast is called Scared, hosted by Phil Holmes, episode 29, entitled Brian's Coat. Enjoy. And I love uh, Phil Holmes Scared. It's very, very good. And we also heard from Richard Burns. My friend who has a ghost in her house told me she was downstairs when the TV turned on. She shut it off, it turned back on, so she shut it off a second time. Then it turned back on and she said, I don't want the TV on to her ghost. I want to sleep. And he didn't turn it on after. He's a nice ghost. She said to me that he was a family member. And Kathy and the Spooktacular crew said, after we went to Poteet, Texas to get strawberries, I had my husband drive me to Lona China Cemetery. It is a very small family cemetery. The story or the ghost tale is if you go at night and park at the gate, you flash your high beams a couple of times, you will hear noises and see a floating lady in white. White. (laughs) Family that still owns the property is the Guzman family. When you walk around, most of the stones are the same last name. The lady in white is a wife or girlfriend of one of the Guzman men. The lady was Chinese and the family didn't approve of her. So when the Guzman guy died and she was so sad about it, she killed herself at his grave. The cemetery does need some sprucing up. What I was disappointed about is there used to be a sign that said, no witchcraft. (laughs) Great little place. It's so small. If you blink, you might miss it. Worth a quick stop. Then Jim Hoffman from the Spectacular Crew. So I've mentioned before how the previous owner... Tina died of cancer in our bedroom. By all accounts, she was beloved by the community and by her students. I've mentioned how the first couple of years after moving in, my son would matter-of-factly state that he saw a nice woman in his room in the middle of the night. I always figured he was dreaming. My wife puts on at least a little makeup every day, especially every workday. Of course, she works in marketing. Anyway, today we found her makeup drawer arranged, all the lipstick set neatly on end versus just thrown in like they were yesterday. I haven't shared my theory with my wife since she's not one of us. And then we got an email from Shelly. Hello, Diane and Denise. I must say I am addicted. I'm not much into history, to be honest, but you've made it interesting for me. Being Canadian, it's exciting to hear stories from my country. I listen at work. I work in a call center, but I'm off the phone doing back-end work, so you keep my day fun. I think I'm up to episode 135-ish. I started at the beginning and I'm working myself up to the current. But my favorites so far have been, obviously, Haunted Disneyland and Marilyn Monroe and Lucille Ball too. Any chance that Disney World has any stories? I've never been to Disneyland, sadly. And any hidden Mickeys that you choose to share would be awesome. 
I really hope at some point I can do a meetup with you guys. This is my first year in seven that I've not been to Florida to stay with my parents and hit Disney. I just wish I'd found your podcast earlier. I usually go by myself for one day to Magic Kingdom as my parents aren't as young as they used to be. So if I'd heard of your podcast earlier, we could have met. Love how involved you are with your fans. Keep up the great work. Well, as far as ghosts at Walt Disney World, I'm pleading the fifth. As far as hidden Mickeys, there are lots of them. And someday I would be happy to share as many as I know down there. And as far as a meetup, let us know next time you're in town. We'd love to see you. I imagine you'll be back if your parents are still here. So that would be great. And we actually had had a request to do Haunted Disney World. We've done Haunted Disneyland. But because Denise actually works there, we just thought it would be best for us to not do that. So we might get to it eventually if she ever decides she doesn't want to be a cast member. Uh, I will. I <laughs> so will. I might be coming through through the curtain at that point. But just saying, <laughs> yeah. if you hear. Yeah. If she works <laughs> at Disney until she dies. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that I have heard some tales about some hauntings going on there. So, yes, there's there's definitely something going on there. Well, there are 999 haunts in a particular home right there in Liberty Square. Yes, Denise, I'm sure everybody's aware of that. We do have some reviews to share with everybody. Shell and 14 really enjoy the show. Five stars. It's like hanging out with a couple of friends, interesting topics, and I like the different segments. Well, thank you, Shell Ann. We appreciate that. Rachel Toms, my new favorite podcast, five stars. And I believe Rachel just joined the Spooktacular crew, so thanks for that. I'm a lover of history and spooky. This is a perfect podcast for so many reasons. It covers so many interesting topics and their history. I love the dialogue and humor between Diane and Denise. I've been hooked since my first listen. Keep them coming because I can't get enough of this podcast. Denise, the brainwashing is working. <laughs> Just don't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and Sig Sig Signify, dreams crushed, five stars. Oh, no. Love the podcast. If they weren't lesbians, I would propose to both of them and we would ride out into the sunset as a happy polygamous family. <laughs> Since that's not going to happen, I guess I'll just have to settle for giving this podcast five stars. So five stars are marriage. That's like what we're getting down to. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Polygamist family. That would um, that would definitely be interesting. So, yes, we're sorry to crush your dreams. And I was born in Salt Lake. So that's not, you know, you know, not too far out of the realm. (laughs) I guess so. Well, thank you, Sig Signify, for the proposal and for the five-star review. We want to thank all of you for tuning in to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.